Just a quick note in this episode, the recording software was picking up the wrong mic, so my audio quality isn't great, but the content is, so I encourage you to listen, or you can just check out any of the other 300 plus episodes of Success Through Failure. If you were to tell me a year ago, hey, uh, if you increase your water intake, you'll be more productive the next day, I would call you kind of crazy, right? But now I've discovered that about myself. And one of the things that's really critical to, to know is that all these findings that we've identified in the research, they're speaking to you know uh, the average. That doesn't necessarily apply to you. There's gonna be specific metrics that only apply to you. And unless you start keeping metrics on your behaviors and your outcomes, you're not gonna be able to find those levers that take your performance to the next level. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr. And today I bring you Dr. Ron Friedman. When I was a Division I All-American athlete, I was hyper-focused and I was able to take consistent action that allowed me to be one of the best in the country at what I did. Well, for years after I was done competing, I just struggled to stay focused on my goals day in and day out. I was easily distracted, so I wasn't able to stay consistent, the kind of consistency that you need to have to achieve goals that are meaningful to you. It was discouraging for me. I felt like I was just slipping kind of into mediocrity. Then after interviewing some of the highest performers in the world, Olympians, CEOs, billionaires, best-selling authors, I discovered how they do it. I discovered 18 powerful and sometimes weird tactics that they use to stay focused at work, focused on the right things while also living a balanced life. And if you start using probably just three of these today, you're going to get more done in the next eight hours. I promise. This is not tomorrow, not next week. These will work today. I guarantee it. It's like magic, but they're real world solutions to it. People like you and me want the ability to stay focused, avoid distraction and be consistent. I use at least four of them every day and have used all of them at some point. And now I'm able to stay focused while I'm at work and get probably 50 to hundred percent more done each day. I'm more present when I'm home with my wife and four kids. And the result is I have a stronger relationship with my family and I'm still able to achieve incredible goals like being selected to give a TEDx talk at one of the biggest TED events in the world, like launching a podcast and talking to A-list guests and running a half marathon, all of this while having a full-time job that includes frequent travel, working nights and weekends and all that good stuff. So you're going to find solutions on this list that are going to surprise you. Grab your copy of the 18 Tactics to Staying Focused at Work. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash focus. That's jimharshawjr.com slash focus. Dr. Friedman is an award-winning social psychologist. He's a best-selling author. He's one of America's leading voices in the science of success, both at work and in just life mastery. He wrote a book called The Best Place to Work. Fascinating book in terms of how to structure your work environment to get the most out of yourself. And his latest book is called Decoding Greatness, How the Best in the World Reverse Engineer Success. Absolutely mind-blowing book. First of all, it's a great read just because the stories are so good. There's so many great, interesting stories of world-class performers who you know, people like Roger Federer, people like Stan Lee of Marvel Comics, world-class performers and how they dealt with failure how they struggled through life and how things were not only hard for them, but how they use reverse engineering to create success. And I listen, I know you've heard of reverse engineering before. This is not what you're thinking. It's not just, okay, look at what those people are doing and, and, and try to mimic them. No, it's, it, there's actually 
specific frameworks that you can do. And he talks about Roger Federer. He actually, you know, he was going through a slump and he was injured and he took a year off and completely revamped his game. But that sounds intimidating. Like, okay, I got to take a year and completely revamp my life. No, you don't. He gives you specific tactical things that you can do today that will impact you tomorrow. This is about decoding greatness. It's fascinating. You're going to get a ton out of this. Here we go. My interview with Dr. Ron Friedman. I am tempted to ask you to just start talking for the next 30 to 40 minutes so we can download as much information as possible. We'll try to keep this focused because there's so much to get through, so much amazing stuff in your books, especially your latest book, Decoding Greatness, where you take a close look at the most accomplished people in arts, sports, business, and how they became the best at what they do. And you say it's not necessarily their talent or their work ethic, but that they have a different framework for learning, which can be applied to anything. Tell us about this. Yeah, exactly right. So the, what I did in this book was I looked at what top performers do differently. What I discovered is it's not the two main stories that we've often heard. And just to refresh everyone's memory, that the two key stories that we've often heard about how top performance happens is that, number one, people have a particular set of talent, right? So talent is the driver for greatness or success. And the key to finding your greatness is to identify what your strengths are and then find a field that allows those strengths to shine. The second story is that greatness comes from practice. This is the idea that if you just have the right practice regimen and you have a desire and a willingness in the discipline to do a lot of hard work, that eventually you'll succeed. But there's a third story. And that third story is reverse engineering. And reverse engineering simply means finding extraordinary examples in your field and then working backward to figure out how they were created. This is the approach that so many entrepreneurs and inventors and athletes use to be successful, but people don't often talk about it. And they don't talk about it because there's a stigma around studying someone else too closely. There's the idea that if we, you know, if I unpack what you do on this podcast, then I'm just simply copying your work. And that's the wrong way of thinking about it because how learning happens is when we have a technique for taking apart those extraordinary examples so that we can learn how they were done and apply those insights to create something that's completely new in our field. So I want to talk about some of these techniques because, listen, we've all heard of reverse engineering. And I'm reading your book and, and going, holy cow, I've never thought about it in these ways that you have demonstrated these different stories of these world-class performers from every walk of life in these different sort of frameworks and tactics for reverse engineering, which are just fascinating. So let's talk about it. Like, what are some of the different ways that you can reverse engineer something, you know, whether it's athletics, whether it's at work or, or otherwise, I mean, what are, what are some of the examples of how you can reverse engineer something? So exactly right. There are going to be a wide variety of tactics, and really it depends on what field you're in. So just to give you a small taste of what some of these tactics look like, in the world of writing, writers like Kurt Vonnegut would transform stories into pictures. And what he did by doing that was he basically put on a graph from the beginning to end, and he tracked the protagonist's fortune over time. So in other words, how are things going for the main character? Are things going well? Things going poorly? And he was almost like giving a story an x-ray. And by the end of it, he just had an image that showed from beginning to end what is going on in this story. And he would do this for all kinds of popular tales. And what he discovered is that when you give the story an x-ray, that there are basically six uh, stories that repeat 
over time throughout every culture and particularly the popular ones in American cultures. So if you look at, for example, Cinderella versus Annie, it's basically the same story with different characters at the beginning of Annie and Cinderella. Things are going poorly for the main character. Uh, Cinderella is being traumatized by her stepsisters and stepmother. Annie is an orphan. Then both of them get temporarily rescued. Then they go back to dire straits. And then finally they live happily ever after. It's basically the same story with different characters in the world of cooking. Chefs will often order dishes to go, and they do that so that they can spread sauces out on a white plate and use a magnifying glass to identify ingredients. Authors, nonfiction writers in particular, will go right to the bibliography at the end of the book to identify the sources that went into creating that book. Photographers look at images and they scan it for shadows. And what that tells them is the placement of the light source and the time of day in which the image was shot. So there are so many techniques that are in this book. And what it really comes down to is having a mindset of curiosity and not simply enjoying extraordinary experiences passively, but adopting that mindset of asking yourself, what's going on here? What makes this special? How is this created? And how can I apply this to the thing that I'm working on? And this takes time, right? I mean, it's, it takes time. The, you know, there's these stories of folks, like some of the folks you mentioned, like they're sitting down and they're, they're studying the great ones. Carbonigate, for example, you know, these stories that have lasted over time and recognizing, okay, there are patterns here. I think there's actually a TED talk, if I'm not mistaken. Is it Sally Hogshead that recognized the, the, the patterns in you know, Martin Luther King Jr. and different speeches over time that go from what is to what could be, what is to what could be. And she studied the, and found these patterns, right? So this is what you're talking about. It's like reverse engineering these patterns. So, but like I said, this takes time, right? You know, it takes time, but it doesn't have to take a ton of time. And I think when you consider the return on investment, it's actually a very microscopic amount of time when compared with what you can gain from it. And so just to give an example of TED Talks, because you brought that up, in Decoding Greatness, I reverse engineer uh, the most popular TED Talk of all time. And it's the one delivered by Sir Ken Robinson on the topic of creativity. In his talk, if you haven't seen it, it's worth checking out. He talks about how schools beat the creativity out of us. We all go into school having all of these different interests and ideas and curiosity. And then what happens is that over the course of however many years you decide to stay in school, you get rewarded for delivering the right answer. And in order to be creative, you need to take some risks. And that's not what schools teach us. School teaches us to get the right answer, that there's a right answer and a wrong answer. In any event, what I do in this talk is I break down what he's doing in every section of his TED Talk. And I show you what the pattern is in terms of like what the emotional valence of every paragraph is. And then I show you how to turn his talk into a template so that you can create something. You can build off his talk and write something new. Now, his particular approach may not be useful to you, but you can see how much time that saves you relative to just staring at a blank screen and trying to write your own TED Talk. On top of that, there's also all these great insights that you uncover when you reverse engineer a successful TED Talk. So in the case of Sir Ken Robinson, what you find is he's actually giving you a grand total of one persuasive fact throughout the entire TED Talk. But what is he doing differently? He has a lot of personal anecdotes that make him relatable as a speaker. Both of those insights are not necessarily things that you would consider doing if you were writing your TED Talk. I can tell you if I was writing a TED Talk, I probably would have a lot of persuasive facts, but that's not what works for him. And so you might uncover all of these different techniques that you would not have thought to put into your TED Talk 
and you wouldn't have had a template. So again, if all you did was reverse engineer his TED talk, and I do that for you in this book, that would take you at worst a couple of hours, but now you have direction. I think So it, ultimately, I think it's a time saver. Absolutely. Yeah, it's leverage time. This is you know, it's an investment, the time that you put into this, whether you're trying to craft a TED talk, or you're trying to, you know, improve your business or increase sales or whatever it might be, you know, this is an investment in your time. So can you share a couple of the frameworks? I know like reverse outlining is one of them. Can you share a couple of the frameworks that are you found most interesting or maybe that, that listeners find most relevant and applicable to their lives, different tactics that they can do? So let's say you're someone who works within an organization. And so the question for you is, okay, what do you, what should you reverse engineer in order to accelerate your success? Now, just to make this concrete for anybody who's listening, most of us work on email in some level. And if you've ever considered improving your emailing skills, what you might do is reverse engineer a really compelling email that was received by you, sent by someone else. And so how do you do that? Well, there are a few strategies you can use. The first one, and this is something that everyone listening to this should start doing if they want to elevate their performance at work, is to become a collector. And what I mean by collections is, you know, I think when we think about collections, we often think about physical objects. We think about artwork or stamps or wine or books. But that definition of collections is too narrow. I can tell you that the best copywriters collect headlines. The best speakers collect presentation decks. I'm a writer. I collect academic journal articles. I collect good stories. And so when I time comes for me to write an article or a book, I can pair the two and find connections between them. When you have a collection, what that allows you to do is it allows you to compare the items in your collection against those that didn't make it. So you're comparing the ordinary against the extraordinary. And when you do that, you can't help but identify the ingredients that went into making that work. So in order to start your collection, it's just a matter of like having a Google Doc. You can use Pinterest. You just want to have a, a place that you go to to study the greats so that when you, it's time for you to start creating something new, you have that inspiration, but you also have that approach that's available to you as long as you just reverse engineer what works. But once you have that collection, what do you do? Well, obviously on the surface, the easiest thing to do is to compare. So spotting the difference is what I compare it to in the book. And so when we when we were kids, we all played that game, spot the difference. When you have two images side by side and your job is to identify what makes them distinct. Here, you can do that as well with the best emails. You can also reverse outline them. That's another technique I talk about in the book. And reverse outlining, we've all heard of outlining. Outlining is... When you bullet point the points you want to make in your finished piece, reverse outlining is taking a finished piece and then working backwards to create that outline. So if you were to recreate that piece, you'd have the bullet points of what went into it. That's an approach you can use not just for your own work, but for works that you've collected. When you reverse outline them, you understand what's going on in broad strokes over the entire piece. And that gives you a framework for understanding both the emotional valence and all the different ingredients that go into creating it. And so it gives you that high level view so that you can create your own template, whether it be creating your own email, it could be writing a blog, it could even be applied to writing a proposal. So it's all about finding great examples, working backwards to identify what made them distinct, and then templatizing them so that you can create your next work. Does reverse engineering work in our own lives? Like, so if I look back on my life, let's say I'm in sales. And I go, man, I, you know, I'm in a slump right now. And, and I was crushing it last year and crushing it five years ago, whatever it might be. And there were these periods where I was, I was doing really well. Is it helpful and useful to reverse engineer kind of what was working for yourself in the past? 
Yes, absolutely. And so here, what I would urge you to do is to identify the elements that went into your success and then create metrics for yourself so that now you're working to fulfill those metrics. So really what we're talking about is reverse engineering your best self. And when you identify when you were at your best, what were you doing differently? It's almost like spotting the difference again and then creating metrics that hold you accountable so that you're actually fulfilling against those behaviors. That's a path to top performance. And one of the things I talk about in this book is the scoreboard principle. And the scoreboard principle simply means that measurement begets performance, meaning anything that you measure, you're likely to improve on. And it's because psychologically, we have evolved in a way that attunes us to numbers. We pay very close attention to metrics. We can't help it. In the past, if we weren't paying attention to metrics, we likely did not survive. And that sounds abstract when you first hear it. But if you think about it, metrics are what tell you to distinguish between a large portion of food against a small portion of food. So now you optimize for getting the large portion of food. If you weren't able to detect which was bigger, a large animal that you could eat or you know a small animal, you pursued the small animal and likely you didn't survive. Beyond that, you were able to detect the size of a neighboring tribe. And if you weren't aware that a tribe was very powerful, you may not have run away, or you may not have tried to ally yourself with them. And so we're evolutionarily attuned to paying close attention to metrics. Social media apps know this, which is why all of them have scores. They know they can hook us with those scores, but we can use the appeal and the attraction of metrics to our own benefit by creating metrics and then holding ourselves accountable to them by tracking them daily. So we know from the research that if you want to increase your water intake, track your water intake every day. If you want to reduce your weight, track your calorie consumption. If you want to increase your focus, track the number of uninterrupted minutes over the course of the day. The more metrics you have that hold you accountable to those behaviors you need to execute on a daily basis, the more successful you'll become. Yep. And this is stuff that we've heard at some level before, but we have to put this stuff into place, you know, in terms of KPIs, metrics, or maybe we just see this in businesses or elite athletes tracking their performance. Like this is relevant for us too, for the individual who's, who's trying to be, you know, the best father, the best mother, the best salesperson, the best entrepreneur, the best coach, the best teacher, whatever it is, like identify the metrics and track them and just create your system for tracking them. This is why businesses are enamored with metrics is they know that they work, but yet somehow there's a disconnect between what works for business and what works for us. We don't apply it. How many people have metrics on how many hours of their day were spent in a focused manner? How many people know how to compare this year's presentations to last year's presentation to ensure that they're getting better? One of the things we talked about before we got on this call is Roger Federer and the way in which he improved his tennis game. Yeah, he took a year off and revamped his entire game, right? Completely. And he did that by looking closely at the metrics and identifying what his weakness was. And what his weakness was, was his backhand. He didn't just work on his backhand. He made changes in his game where now he started taking the backhand earlier in the point. So he was hitting the ball flatter. And by hitting it flatter, he was able to hit it uh, more powerfully, giving his opponent less time to react. Again, the same point with taking the backhand earlier, giving his opponent less time to react. He turned his weakness into a strength. He would not have identified what that weakness was if he didn't have those metrics. And the same is true for all of us. Unless we're keeping metrics on ourselves, we're not going to identify what our weaknesses are. We're not going to find those leading indicators that are worth playing with and, and focusing on. And I can tell you myself, you know, I track a whole bunch of metrics. And one of the things I discovered is that uh, it's not something I was expecting. And it is that my water intake affects 
the amount of deep sleep I get. So if I don't drink enough during the day, I'm not going to get that deep sleep. Deep sleep is what's going to drive my creativity and my productivity and my focus. And so, you know, if, if you were to tell me a year ago, hey, uh, if you increase your water intake, you'll be more productive the next day, I would call you kind of crazy, right? But now I've discovered that about myself. And one of the things that's really critical to know is that all these findings that we've identified in the research, they're speaking to, you know, uh, the average that doesn't necessarily apply to you. There's going to be specific metrics that only apply to you. And unless you start keeping metrics on your behaviors and your outcomes, you're not going to be able to find those levers that will take your performance to the next level. Yeah. Another example you mentioned in the book, you mentioned creativity as, you know, this is, it's not about stealing someone else's stuff. Like creativity has come from reverse engineering other things and looking at what other people are doing that's working and putting that into a pot and, and mixing it up and coming out with new ideas. You know, I, I know you mentioned in the book about Barack Obama he used to be terrible at public speaking and he used reverse engineering to learn from others. This wasn't stealing. This was like learning from others. So how did he do that? How did he turn that aspect of his professional life around so it became a huge asset? Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories in the book, and it's how Barack Obama got to the level that he got in terms of public speaking. And, you know, regardless of what your political views are, I think we can all agree that he's a pretty persuasive and effective speaker. And what most people don't realize is that when he first entered politics, he was a terrible speaker. And that seems like a, a stunning statement. And it's because he was a law school professor. And as a law school professor, he was used to lecturing students and voters didn't appreciate being lectured to. And they let him know at the ballot box, his first race for, for Congress, he got trounced by a margin of more than two to one. And for a while, he thought about leaving politics. He was broke, wasn't really sure what his next step should be. Until someone on his campaign team said, hey, why don't you check out what pastors are doing in the church? And when he came back a few years later, his style was transformed. He was now telling stories and using repetition and modulating his tone and quoting the Bible. And it completely changed his speaking style and made him a lot more appealing to voters. And what I love about that story is that what it illustrates is that Barack Obama didn't go off into the wilderness and find his talent. He didn't spend 10 years practicing. What he did was he found what was working in a different field and incorporated that approach into his speaking style. And that turns out to be the path to creativity for a lot of folks in a way that is so much easier than trying to you know, go into a dark room, close your eyes and come up with a creative idea. You don't need to do that. What you need to do is figure out what's working in a different field that could be incorporated into yours. And a, another example that didn't make the book, but I, it's one I've been sharing with folks recently, is Lin-Manuel Miranda. If you think about what may, has made him successful, if, I don't know if you've had a chance to see In the Heights. It's on uh, HBO. It came out this summer. And it's actually the show that he did before Hamilton. And uh, what you find is that it has tremendous overlap with Hamilton. But the thing about Lin-Manuel Miranda is he took the classic Broadway musical formula and he layered on top of that salsa and rap. And that makes him distinct. But he didn't break out until he added one more element, which was American history in Hamilton. What his story demonstrates is that, look, he's obviously incredibly talented, but he didn't invent something completely new. He combined elements from disparate fields to create something that felt fresh. And I think that that is a very different approach than most of us have about creativity. I think we often conflate originality 
with creativity. And those two ideas are distinct. You don't need to be a complete original in order to be creative. In fact, it's much easier if you just look to see what's working in different fields and combine them in a new way. You look at the iPhone, you know, Steve Jobs didn't create the MP3 player. He didn't create the phone, but he combined them into one new device and it overtook the market. And obviously it's evolved very far since 2007 when it came out. But the point is, is that, you know, it's just finding a way to combine things that are working in disparate fields. And it is a very freeing approach because all of a sudden you don't have to feel like you need to be a creative genius to come up with something new. All you have to do is have a, a keen eye for what's working and deconstruct what the elements are and find ways of combining them. Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. And it's fascinating that you bring up Steve Jobs because in the book you talk about, and I didn't know this story. This is so fascinating that Steve Jobs had come up with the computer, the personal computer, and Bill Gates, there was a conflict there initially because, you know, Bill Gates, he accused Bill Gates of, of stealing the idea because Bill Gates had this big media to do about, you know, they're coming out with their own personal computer. Can you talk about that story and the fact that these guys actually both copied somebody else? Well, I shouldn't say copy because that has this negative connotation. It's they saw what was working for somebody else and they took something and put their own ideas to it and then carried it further. But go ahead. Yeah, so this is the history of the personal computer. So just to give some context, back in the 1970s, personal computers looked nothing like the devices that we have today. If you wanted a computer to do anything, you had to reach for a keyboard and input a text-based language, uh, syntax, essentially, to get the computer to do anything. And that changed with the Xerox Alto. And what Xerox introduced with this was a very large, very expensive computer that was designed for organizations. It cost over $100,000 and you had to buy a minimum of five of them. And what it, it did was it introduced the graphic user interface. Now, that's just a fancy term that, that you're now reacting to images on a screen and using a mouse in order to manipulate them. So you no longer have to type in your instructions or memorize this really rigid language. Now you just point and click. That was the invention of Xerox. And again, they were just focused on selling it into businesses. They really didn't see the potential. And it's because in Xerox, most of their executives grew up in the 1950s and they just couldn't see past the idea of people wanting a personal computer. They thought that typing was the domain of secretaries. They really did not see the potential. Steve Jobs did. He got a glimpse of what they were working on and he went back to his company and said, hey, we got to work on this too. Same was true for Bill Gates. He also got a glimpse of the Alto and was working on it. Now, at the time, Gates was a vendor for Apple. And so just before Apple was about to introduce the Macintosh, the first point and click computer, Gates announces that he's working on Windows. And so Steve Jobs assumes that Bill Gates has stolen this idea from him. In fact, both of them got the idea from Xerox. And you know, we talked about this idea of, did they copy? And to me, if we're talking about like copying, both of those guys would have needed to get the code from the Xerox Alto and simply copied it to create something that they put their name on. But that's not what they did. They saw an underutilized invention and then they worked backward to figure out how it was created and then modified it in key ways. In the case of Apple, they were looking to make computers user-friendly. In the case of 
uh, Microsoft, they were looking to make computers inexpensive. The Alto did neither of these. And so what they did was they reverse engineer something that wasn't being utilized sufficiently by Xerox and they put their own spin on it. And that approach of identifying what's working for someone else, working backwards to figure out how they did it, and then modifying it to make it your own turns out to be a lot more common than people expect. It's an approach that anybody can use to elevate their performance. That's what's so interesting about this whole concept of decoding greatness is it's accessible to anybody else. I mean, we look at Steve Jobs, who really was a creative genius, but guess what? He also looked around and said, hey, what else is working out there? What else is working that, that other people are doing that I can incorporate into what I'm doing? And for the listener, what does that mean for you? That means look around your world. What is working for other people in whatever area of your life that you want to improve, right? If it's at work, like look at your boss, look at colleagues who are very successful. I mean, they might be right there in your office, right underneath your nose. Like who are some other people who are, you know, around the world, maybe on the other side of the world who are really good at doing what you do, what you do. Like, what can you learn from them? I mean, this doesn't have to be from what I'm hearing, Ron, it doesn't sound like it has to, to be this huge undertaking. It doesn't have to be Roger Federer taking a year off and completely revamping everything. You can just look around and start small and start learning from the things that are around you. A hundred percent. Just to bring this point home on Steve Jobs, it wasn't simply the design of the computer. It was also the, its appearance. He, In order to figure out the design of the Macintosh, he didn't look at other computers. He drove to Macy's and looked at the designs of blenders and Cuisinart devices. And what he got from that was the idea for the plastic, the neon plastic casing that made the Macintosh so distinctive. On top of that, when it was time to open the Apple store, he sent his executive team to study the Ritz-Carlton. And so both of those examples, what they illustrate is he wasn't some guy who was sitting in an office and doling out these great ideas. He had a methodology for studying the best in class and taking them apart. And that's what I hope that listeners get out of this is that you can do this and it doesn't need to be hugely time intensive. You just need the techniques to understand why something works and then the curiosity to ask yourself, hey, how can I apply this to the thing I'm working on? Yeah. And, and that makes me think like, okay, so if I'm, I'm just going to use that example of, of sales again, right? So it's like, if I want to be good at sales, I may look at other salespeople in my industry. I may look at salespeople from other industries. I may look at, you know, we talked about TED Talks. You might look at TED Talks and see what great communicators are doing and how they're using body language and, and the words that they're saying in persuasive language. Like you could look at other areas, right? So Steve Jobs is going, looking at Cousinart and he's looking, you know, he's going to, to hotels and going like, okay, you know, what are the best design elements that we can bring into our products? So, so look around you, look right under your nose, but also look at other things that might be a little bit outside of the box. And what I love about that approach is that it gives you license to just be curious. And if you, you know, if you enjoy watching Japanese films on the weekend, have at it. You know, if you want to watch Keeping Up with the Kardashians, that's fine too, because it's just about figuring out what is making this work. It's, it's just about that mindset of taking things apart and consistently asking yourself, what can I learn from this? Mm -hmm. And, and keeping up with the Kardashians, what can you learn? I mean, if, again, using that sales, it's like, well, why are people even interested in these people? This is ridiculous, but it's like, there are things to learn about the marketing, about the language that's going on in a show like that, that you can learn. You know, you talk about all these world-class performers. How does failure 
play into the success of these world-class performers that you talk about in decoding greatness. And you've talked about, you know, people from athletics to politics to business and arts. Does failure play a role in their success? How do we use reverse engineering to deal with our own failures and, you know, reach our own personal greatness? So, so this is actually, I don't know if you got to this, uh, Jim, but the, in chapter five of this book, I make the case that courage is overrated. And I think that this may be an interesting conversation for the two of us because, I, you know, there's so much been said about, hey, you need to be courageous. You need to take big swings. You need to risk things in order to learn. I 100% agree with most of that, except for the part of necessarily putting everything on the line. And I think that we've come to just accept the idea that in order to be successful, we need to risk everything. But in fact, what you look at the most successful businesses, what they're doing is they're taking intelligent risks in a way that where failure has a very minor cost. And an example of this is companies who are using test audiences to figure out whether or not something is working before going public with it. I give the example of comedians. You know, we've heard the story of Chris Rock testing things out in minor clubs. But the same is true for politicians where they go to spaghetti dinners and they go to diners and they test out those key phrases before they go up on the, you know, the the big convention stage. They test everything. And the same is true for us. You know, uh, I give, also give the example of Tim Ferriss, the, the famous author. And Tim Ferriss, what he did was before his book came out, he wasn't sure what to call it. He wasn't sure about the title. And so he took out $100 worth of Google AdWords and he put the titles in the different AdWords to see which one got the most clicks. And what he found was the four-hour work week was the winner by far. He invested $100 to get some feedback that gave him direction. And so he didn't put everything on the line. He didn't just pick a title. And go out to market, he created a test audience. And, and today, you know, with the world of Facebook, you can test market anything for very little money just to identify what's getting the reaction. Another example is working under a pseudonym. J.K. Rowling, when after uh, Harry Potter, she wanted to go into crime fiction, but she didn't publish it under J.K. Rowling because that would be risky. What she did was she published under Robert Galbraith. And when that book got good reviews, she revealed that she was really the author behind that book. And you see all these companies on Amazon. You know, when you look up a toaster on Amazon, you're going to come up with pages and pages of companies you've never heard of. A lot of those companies are owned by major brands that are working under a pseudonym, both to test market different products before they announce them as their own, but also to avoid cannibalizing their in-store products. And so working under a pseudonym is another approach that a lot of folks can use if they want to test market ideas without putting everything on the line. And so, yes, take risks, but don't put everything on the line. Do it intelligently. You can learn from some of these top performers. And I'll just give you one final example, which I love. This is uh, one that was used by Bill Gates, which is sell first and build later. Don't build a product and then hope that you can sell it. Instead, try to sell it. And if somebody gives you money to build it, then build it. And that's an approach that Bill Gates used before he had Windows. He had a different software program. And he, in order to determine whether it was worth creating, he made sure he got a presentation on the books with the company that can give him funding for it. And then he built a demo. So again, he could have wasted a lot of time building a program and then try to sell it. Instead, he got the meeting first and then he built it. And again, it's just prioritizing the sale before the build can save you a lot of time and ensure that the risks that you do take actually pay off. Fail small. Take steps. Keep moving forward. 
fail small, launch something, iterate, improve. And that's for anybody that's listening where you're you're on the treadmill or you're driving down the road or wherever you're at right now. Don't just listen to this episode and go, okay, that all sounds like good ideas. And then go on through your life the way you normally go through it. Like actually hit the pause button. Think about how does this apply to my life? How can I fail small? How can I learn? How can I test? How can I iterate and improve? I mean, Failure is a necessary step on the path to success. And like Ron said, it doesn't have to be all in. You don't have to go all in. We think about Jeff Bezos and people like that, like all in. He like we think Jeff Bezos knew what Amazon that Amazon was going to be the behemoth that it is today when he started. No, he didn't. He tested. He tried things. Failures all over the place in Amazon. But they've succeeded through those failures. They've created tests and trials and iterations, learned from their successes, learned from their failures, killed off some of their failures or iterated some of those failures and became successful. Exactly right. Exactly right. You know, even today, you know, you go on Amazon and I go on Amazon, we see two different websites because they're testing all the time and it's how they learn. I, you know, it, it, when you have a book on Amazon, you'll, you see that they change prices all the time. They change uh, the presentation all the time and they're constantly, constantly testing. And I think Mark Zuckerberg has been quoted as saying, there is no one Facebook. There's a thousand different Facebooks at all time. And how many of us are doing those experiments, you know, whether it be your daily routine or how you approach a project, unless you're testing, you're not learning. So I interviewed Tim Ferriss in episode 246 and 247 for the listener, if you want to go back and check that one out. But he talks about short term, low cost experiments, testing things out, right? Whether it's the, the drinking of water and how that affects your sleep, like Ron, like you talked about, or something in your business or something in your personal life, test things out, follow the metrics, iterate and improve. So Ron, for the listener who's saying, okay, I'm in, I get it. This sounds like something I can do in my life. Number one, I'm going to recommend absolutely buy the book, Decoding Greatness. I mean, it's a fascinating book because not only is it great conceptually and great tactically, but there's so many really interesting stories of people who, who we all know, some of whom we mentioned in the episode already today. But I, I definitely, number one, recommend that as an action item. Is there another action item, something that people can do in the next maybe 24 or 48 hours to really start applying this to their lives? Well, it's a strategy we talked about before, but it is one that I think that anybody can apply right away, which is start collecting. When you come across extraordinary examples, whether it be an email or a website or a proposal or a presentation, have somewhere to store that so that when next time you need to write an email or a memo or a presentation, you have something to look at so that you can be inspired by it, but also have some inspiration around the structure. I can tell you as a writer, I collect opening sentences. I collect transition sentences. I collect conclusions. And then when it's time for me to write those, I look at some of those great examples and I don't copy them, but they give me ideas that get me unstuck. Well, I'm working on a book myself right now and I've been collecting things for years. I've always known that I was going to be, I'm going to write a book. And for years I've, I've collected similar type things, Ron. I've, I've collected, you know, introductory paragraphs or book, you know, first sentences of certain books or topics or covers or titles or concepts or, or sort of formats of books that I'm like, yes, this is something I need to capture. And I use that. So this is reverse engineering. Um, I'll give another practical example. I've got a client who he's in the restaurant business and he's opened up four so far he's about to open his fifth and he's got a sixth one on the way and one of the things that he's doing right now is he's driving around his town his city and he's 
keeps his phone and he, and he takes pictures on his phone whenever he sees different design elements, whether it's design of the menu, layout of the bar area, seating outside or whatever it might be, design elements. And he, he takes pictures of them, saves them on his phone. I mean, this is reverse engineering. Yeah. And it's something that you've got to start doing if you want to improve. Again, it's if you want to have that mindset of curiosity and reverse engineering, the first step is to collect and have an eye for greatness. So you, you're going to become great unless you identify what greatness looks like. Right. And so that's something you can do on Pinterest. It's something you can do with by bookmarking. It's something you can have, you know, some people use EndNote, whatever the case may be. Don't fret about the technology, but just start collecting. And I love the fact that you've been doing this, Jim. I can tell you, like, this is how I've been doing it. And one of the things I study is New Yorker articles. And I can't tell you the number of New Yorker articles that start with the sentence, not too long ago, Jim went home or something like that, like not too long ago, or like that the structure is repetitive. And if you can figure out what the structure is, you can create a template for yourself. You can shortcut all the suffering and the pain that comes with writing. And we're just talking about writing here. Like look, if you're a presenter, if you're a salesperson, if you're a marketer, whatever the case may be, there are items you need to start collecting so that the next time you need to write, it's a lot easier for you. Yeah, absolutely. Ron, we look at someone like you who you've had tremendous success in your life and you've been on all these media outlets. You've written these amazing, just absolutely transformational books. Has there been a time when you failed? Like we, it's easy for us from the outside looking in and saying, man, everything Ron does is just easy for him and, and, and it's been this straight path of success. But can you share a time when you failed? Man, I don't know how much time you have. <laughs> I'm failing all the time. I'll give you an example just, you know, in broad strokes. Before I went into academics, before I went into doing all this work, I wanted to be a musician and I couldn't figure out how to do it. Part of it was I didn't have the money for the equipment. I was, you know, in my 20s or before then even. Couldn't figure out how to break in with a band. I keep telling my wife if all of these tools were available today with, you know, all, all these auto-tune and all these recording devices. Back then, you needed to hire a band and you needed to go into a studio. I mean, that was expensive. It was really, really expensive. And I moved on. And I've always, I always told myself I'd go back to it one day. But the truth is that I could have done it. If I had the techniques that we've been talking about today, which is reverse engineering, if I had simply reverse engineered what was working for other artists, figured out how to apply it to music, I could have gotten there. And that's what I hope that people take away from this book, which is the idea that, hey, if you're stuck at a day job right now that you don't like because A, you don't feel like you have the talent, you weren't born with it, or B, you don't have 10,000 hours to practice your craft and become extraordinary, then I, I want to disabuse you of those being the only two paths to greatness. It really is the case that if you start reverse engineering, you can accelerate your success by learning from the best, templatizing it, and starting to apply it to succeed faster. And that's, you know, that's the goal of this book. Excellent. Ron, this is incredible. For the listener who wants to learn more, find you, follow you, buy your books, et cetera, where do we send them? Best place to go to get this book is decodinggreatnessbook.com. The reason I say that is when you get to that website, we're going to encourage you to buy the book anywhere you want. But if you send us the receipt, you will get a free course on how to reverse engineer in your field. And it's completely free, decodinggreatnessbook.com. The other place I'd urge you to go to is ignite80.com. That's my company's website. The reason it's called Ignite 80 is because over 80% of employees are not fully engaged at work. And so the mission of Ignite 80 is to teach leaders science-based principles for creating a happier, healthier, more productive workforce. Excellent. For the listener, 
If you're driving, don't worry. You don't have to write those down. I'll have all that in the action plan, jimharshajr.com slash action. You'll get the links and the list and the quotes and all the best bullet points from this entire episode with Ron Freeman. Ron, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshajr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshajr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app if you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.